it's interesting, the habitual nature of virtue and vice, again, they're both, they're both habits and patterns, but in very different ways. Like, vice is, always ends up as a compulsion, that you, you're stuck in a rut, whereas virtue is always an, an, a habit toward freedom, towards the ability to break out of, of habits and ruts and instantiate the good in, in surprising ways. My favorite line from him is he's like seeing his mother after he's been away at school, and he's like, what is that quiz of a hat, mother? You look like an old witch. And that's like the first thing he says to her. It's so rude and so funny. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, pay attention to how they treat their mom. Yeah. <laughs> well, hello. Welcome back to Elevate Ordinary. I'm your host, John Mark Grodi. I'm Drew Grodi. And we're back with another extraordinary conversation about the ordinary pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. Today, we're going to revisit, gosh, a couple of our favorite topics, virtues and Jane Austen. And we've got a really extra special guest with us today that we'll introduce here in a moment. Uh, but as always, I want to remind you that if you want more information about this show or to go look up past episodes, the whole archive you can go to ElevateOrdinary.com. There's also information about our Patreon community, The Manor at St. Anne's. Check that out there. Also download the Awaken app at theawakenapp.io. It's the best way to follow this show and other shows at Awaken Catholic. There's all kinds of cool stuff in that app. You know, Father Peter is actually doing a Lenten series of reflections in the app. My, yeah. my brother, Father Peter. So a lot of cool stuff there to check out. Teresa, we've got a very special guest today. Why don't you do the honors and introduce her? I'm so excited. Haley Stewart from Carrots or Michaelmas is with us. And I was really worried I was going to get that wrong because like in our household, when we talk about the group, it's like, well, your blog, the group, the podcast, I'm always like fountains for carrots for Michaelmas. <laughs> or I think one time John Mark was like microwave carrots, you know, that group. That you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've mangled, I've mangled the title when I've been referring so to I, it. I almost <laughs> never say it correctly. But, but we're big endearing. fans, big fans of all of them. <laughs> I know actually. So not, so you, I remember coming across your blog in college when blog, like Catholic private blog hosting was brand new. And it was like you and Mark Barnes's Bad Catholic. I think Jimmy Aiken had a blog on Patheos or something like that. And it was just like, you guys were it. Like when we went to go look for sound Catholic thought, <laughs> it was like... Carrots for Michaelmas. So I'm really excited to finally get to talk to you um, rather than just being on the receiving end of your excellent reflections. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your blog, podcast group, and then like you have some really exciting developments that have just happened recently. So yeah, let us so know. I am a mom of four living in Central Texas. My husband is a distiller, so he makes whiskey for a living. And I have had a blog in the past. It's very neglected now, carrotsformichaelmas.com. Since then, co-host a podcast with Chrissy Isinger, the founds of Carrots Podcast, which is a lot of fun. And we're also dinosaur podcasters. We've been doing that for <laughs> seven years. And um, also write some books, do a little bit of speaking here and there. And then I just started a new position at Word on Fire, which is Congrats. so exciting. Yeah. So dream job. 
And it's I, I'm the managing editor of Word on Fire Spark. So that is their children's imprint in their awesome. in their publishing. So a lot of exciting things coming out there. That's awesome. We have Brittany Enzio is in the um, very active oh, Fountains of Car- Carrots, Raspberry. You, you have yes, to say we've it. got a Facebook group. It's the Fountains of Carrots, Raspberry Cordial See? Social Club. <laughs> Even you have to think, Um, but we met on there and we did an episode on children's literature and it was like, it was awesome. And it, yeah. So fun. Very cool. So that's, uh, that's so exciting. We're big. So we homeschool and we do like a hybrid of classical education and unschooling. (laughs) The unschooling is my favorite. Um, We loved when you were, um, you and your husband were doing that farm internship because like we love Mm -hmm. regenerative farming and stuff like that. So very exciting. But you have a new book coming out. And when I saw this book, I saw like, this ooh, announcement. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. I was like, Do I think she'll come on our show. Maybe she'll come on our show. <laughs> a couple of our favorite things. These are a couple of our favorite things. Yeah, yeah. So you have a book coming out. And I wrote it down because I'm not good at remembering things clearly. Um, Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. Coming out the Annunciation 2020. Um 2022. We're now in 2022. Um, <laughs> what is time? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but you're, you, you dissect Jane Austen and vice and virtue. So it's like so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, could you tell us a little more about that book? Sure. Awesome. So I'm huge Jane Austen fan and have loved her novels forever. But I think what I've always found most interesting is how her novels show us how to be good people. She really, in in her characters, which are so lifelike and so interesting, she really dives into the the virtues, the vices, how they affect our community, how they affect the people around us, how we can develop virtue and leave vice behind, or what happens when we decide not to try to pursue virtue and then how do those vices affect ourselves and the people that we love? And so I kind of jumped in thinking of Jane Austen as our moral philosopher, life coach, yes. you know, walking us through these examples and helping us um, gain self-knowledge and self-awareness and reflect on these vices and virtues in our own lives. Nice. So let me let me ask a couple of preliminary questions before we dig into Jane Austen proper. Okay, so first of all, so our our kind of shtick on this show is we're talking to fellow you know husbands and wives and families. We're talking about pursuing holiness in ordinary life, and and because of that, you know, one of our primary frames of reference on the show is the framework of the virtues, which I I think is even though we hear the term thrown around a lot in the church, I don't think it's taught well. I think we've lost, and we need to kind of rediscover a lot of the the treasure of that holistic uh, practical framework for understanding the human person. Uh, and so that's why I'm, gra- I'm glad to, to see books coming out about virtue because it's like there's a lot of treasure there that we're missing. Um, and so, but in this case, a, a couple of preliminary questions here. So number one is um, what, talk a little bit about the role of good literature in forming virtue. I mean, like, uh, Jane Austen is the example that we have today, but in general, like what, what do we get out of reading these uh, portraits of vice and virtue in literature? How does that involve, uh, help our family life and help our our growth? Sure. 
Well, I think that human beings are wired to learn through stories. Yeah. You know, Jesus tells parables in the New Testament. He's trying to explain concepts and he knows that human beings are designed to understand and learn through stories. And so I think that that is just so key in understanding these concepts of virtue. We have to have these exemplars. You know, we have to have these models and these narratives that give us a picture that we can hold on to. Because when we're reading philosophy, you know, we can think about these concepts, but until we have someone who's exemplifying these virtues that we can really see and imagine, it's, it's another level of kind of embracing that concept and understanding it in a deeper way. And so I think that we can both understand through good lit literature, and then um, also it inspires us to dig deeper and pursue holiness because we have these inspiring examples through yeah. these characters. That's a great, uh, that's a really great point. And that, that, that really resonates with my experience here that it's almost like sometimes we can get the conceptual knowledge of the faith, right? You, you can, you can say, okay, do good and avoid evil or, or whatever moral precept you want or whatever virtue or vice you want. But it's not really until you encounter that person that, that, that vice or virtue in action, that you have the qualitative content that fills out the concept. And hopefully you don't have to wait around to experience that in real life because it may be a long time, you know, in literature, we're able right, to go yeah. out there and experience again, the, the greasy, grimy uh, greed of a Dickens character before we have to go work for one, hopefully, you know, like we can, <laughs> we can experience that and, and reflect on it and have that fill out our, our moral imagination first so that then as you said our conceptual knowledge is more full yeah. yeah we were talking this morning about being like so i was a waitress for 10 years 15 to 25 and i worked at a truck stop when i was 15 and so i would encounter a lot of like like male stuff towards me you know i don't know how else to describe it you know just like stuff and i remember that really formed the kind of men I wanted to look for, you know, it, I didn't feel wounded or I didn't feel like, like I lowered my standards. I felt like, geez, this is not the kind of marriage I want to hope for someday. Or like, I really, you know, like this signal of a person, like this quality that I'm seeing in this person is not something I want to see in the person <laughs> that I'm going to date, you know? Um, and yeah, but so like, I, so I'm a historian and for a long time I was a nonfiction snob. Um, I would just be like, well, what's the point of ever like thinking about like, why do I have to read a novel? You can just tell me what happened. Like there's, there's reality that happened, you know? And it wasn't until I read C.S. Lewis's one on purgatory. Oh, the great divorce. Yeah. And I, I remember I read it in a day and I was just sitting there thinking like, I understand more about purgatory. I understood about purgatory. I was educated, you know, as a Catholic and I was an on fire Catholic but I understood more about purgatory coming out of that book than I even thought my brain could hold. It was experiential and it was something I had never experienced before. Um, and so coming to fiction so late in life, um, we just started consuming like the good, the, the, the things you think of first, like C.S. Lewis going through the Narnia, going through the space trilogy. Um, and then I hit Jane Austen right around the same time he started studying the virtues mm -hmm. You were starting to talk about the virtues and I had a hard time conceptualizing them. And then I remember I was reading Emma and I was hearing Mr. Knightley talk about the same things John Mark was talking about. 
And so I would like go back and reread and I would start to understand the virtues in a similar way that he was trying to express to me and they just weren't getting through. So I'm a newbie <laughs> to all fiction. <laughs> Watching the um, Gwyneth Paltrow Emma years ago with my older brother. So he was a teenager at the time. He was probably 17. And we're watching this scene. For those of you who aren't familiar with Emma, it's um, about a young woman and Mr. Knightley is kind of the, the male lead. He's her friend, he's a neighbor, and he is just a, a wonderful guy. And there's a scene where Emma has humiliated this spinster and Mr. Knightley is upset by her actions and in the film, it's slightly different in the book, but in the film, he asks the spinster, would you like to accompany me? We'll go pick strawberries mm -hmm. and to get her out of this humiliating situation. And I remember my brother saying like, I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. He always knows, Mr. Knightley always knows what the right thing to do is. And then he does it, even if it's not what he may want to do. He doesn't want to spend the afternoon picking strawberries with this annoying old spinster but he knew this is this is what needs to happen. I'm in this situation where this person's been injured and I can be the one to take her out of this humiliating situation and make her feel better. And that's what I need to do. And so I think that um, Austin is so good at taking these ordinary situations that we're all going to find ourselves in at some point and showing us how we ought to act and and how those actions really matter in our ordinary lives. She has really small settings. You know, it's usually a, a little town or, you know, just one or two families. So the characters are limited and the settings really limited. But within that, she's so nuanced and so meticulous and has such a rich, rich fabric to her stories that we can imagine ourselves in these scenarios. You, we can imagine ourselves realizing, wow, this conversation has gotten really awkward. A friend who I, who I really like crossed a line. And now I have to figure out the right thing to do. Even though I'm going to offend my friend, I need to step in and make this other person feel better. You know, that, that's a situation we're all going to be in at some point with annoying neighbors or awkward lunches. And so seeing these events as times when that's really going to define our character mm -hmm. and it will have serious ramifications that we might not understand. I think that that's what makes Austin just genius. Yeah. Yeah. I, that exact scenario with Mr. Knightley in the movie, <laughs> actually, mm -hmm. I remember thinking, I used to think of gentility as a class. Well, like a, a financial class, like someone who just owns mm -hmm. land or whatever. But in that moment, like it really occurred to me that, there was a looking up to like you, especially like in Emma, like you see that playing out a lot where the people who are the gentry are the people who should behave and learn to behave well in all situations so that they are the example for their town, you know? And um, I remember that, that exact situation is like, this is why people make big deals about what, what's a gentleman, what's not a gentleman, and this is not gentlemanly behavior, you know, or this is not a lady's behavior. Um, there was an expectation that if you held that position, you had virtue and you, wor you worked to attain it. Yeah, I think, 
No, you go ahead. No, please, please go. You're good. Well, I think that, um, that, yeah, that's a great point. And I think Austin does a really good job of kind of challenging those ideas of class. You know, a lot of times the, the wealthiest people in her novels yeah. are actually exhibiting some very serious vices. And so she's kind of being, being critical of that a little bit and, and showing that, um, just, you know, all, all that glitters is not gold, you know, just because yeah. someone is in this upper class doesn't mean they're going to really be able to behave the way they ought. Yeah. yeah. Especially with the clergy too. I think it's so funny because her father mm -hmm. was a clergyman and she yeah. must have had lots of like intimate settings with clergymen too. Cause we, we have to assume that her father was not all those men right. <laughs> wrapped into one. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, she's well, very clever. And that, and that, that's I think part of the genius of her novels too is I uh, thinking more of uh, Pride and Prejudice here on how sometimes the fact that the vice shows up or the same vices show up both in the gentry as well as the the more common people, whereas she she uses that to highlight you know the the viciousness of vice a little bit in the sense of like um, Lizzie's parent like Lizzie's mom to some degree we're willing to forgive a little bit of her prejudice and a little bit of her ridiculousness, but it's, it's less forgivable when it comes from Lady uh, Catherine, Lady Catherine yeah. where you're like, you have a, you, to, to whom much has been given, much is, much is required. You've been given so much and yet you're exhibiting these same vices to an nth degree. You're not using your power, your privilege, you're not using the gifts that God has given you to do good, to raise people up. You're just tearing people down. You're just being manipulative. And so like even there, she uses the classes to, to even show further that, um, you know, the, the virtue is what we're all called to. And if you've been given more, you have even a heightened responsibility to use that virtuously. And at the end of, at the end of that novel, you see, I mean, you see those things clearly. You see the playing fields being leveled based on virtue, the people who, have virtue in the end, kind of having the same end result, you know, the gardeners and um, Jane and Bingley, and then the people who do not kind of having, like going about their own silly ways, you know, and just still in these same little positions that they'll be in stuck ruts, in forever. Yeah. I do love though, she, she, she always treats the villains with hope. Um, so even at the end of Pride and Prejudice, when you're looking at this life between Wickham and Lydia, um, she gives you a little more that makes you feel like perhaps in time they'll calm down. Or at the end of um, Sense and Sensibility with uh, Willoughby and his wife, that eventually he does settle into a kind of life, maybe not as good of a life as he could have had with a different spouse. And I love how she is always highlighting that your spouse matters, <laughs> you know, the match that you make matters. But I, I love how she takes the villainous characters and you even kind of see how you could be there, how a close friend could be there and that there's still kind of hope. They're never totally ruinous. I mean, in, in her like comedy novels, at least, you know, they're never totally gone. You know, they're very real, Yeah, <laughs> real people. There's almost exactly. There's almost no like angelic characters and there's almost no truly malicious characters mm -hmm. in all of her novels um i can only think of one true villain which would be mrs norris from mansfield park but um most of her rakes and cads 
are very interesting characters mm -hmm. and they're often not malicious at all. They're either weak or they're inconstant. They're just not able to fall through becoming the sort of person they'd like to be, even though they admire that. So I think they're all very sympathetic. We can all see ourselves in yes. them. And really the, the difference between those characters and the heroes and heroines is that the heroes and heroines are really trying to get better. Yeah. And the villains all have kind of given up. They've just, they're, they're just going with, they're going on, you know, they're on the train and they've just decided to ride the train in whatever direction. But it's through relationship and community that Austin's characters come to this awakening of self-knowledge about their own flaws that helps them then move forward and, and develop those virtues. So I think that's so interesting when we think about vocation, you know, as, as a wife, I have been called to marriage. And so I am in this family and that is what shines a light on all of my flaws is my relationships yes. with my family members. It makes it so clear. And, you know, whether it's family or close friends or whether people are living religious life and they're in a religious community and have those relationships, though, that's how we learn about ourselves. Yeah. And those are, that's kind of the mirrors through which we see our, our vices that need to be remedied. And so going back to Emma and Mr. Knightley, Emma would not have known herself if she didn't have a really good friend, Mr. Knightley, who was able to point out to her, mm -hmm. you've really messed up here. Yeah. And, and then she really does want to change. She's able to be honest with herself about her feelings and move forward. But without that relationship, she probably would have continued just stumbling around in her ridiculousness yeah. and nonsense. She, yeah. We need those relationships in that community. That's how God speaks to us. Yeah. Emma's Emma's so unique because she has kind of like what you get when you can coast through academics without putting too much effort into it, you know, and everybody <laughs> thinks well of you and you can just put on just enough of the effort and you are an intelligent person you know, so you can kind of manipulate the situations, but then the disagreeable person comes in and that's their job. Their job is to be kind of disagreeable, you know, and to, to point <laughs> out, you know, your flaws that they see no one else pointing out. And that's like, that's the only way, that's the only way sometimes you can hear those things, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. So another thing, I've got a couple interrelated questions here. One is that obviously vice and, and virtue we're talking about. There's an, an habitual aspect of both of those and they're habitual in, in slightly different ways. But, you know, talk a little bit, maybe some examples or some ways in which Austin brings that out, that we're not just talking about individual isolated choices, but patterns of habits that that people get stuck in. I mean, talk about that a little bit of it. Vices and virtues as habits. Sure. I think that maybe Pride and Prejudice is a fun one to yeah. talk to because it's one of the most well-known, yeah. but you have two main characters, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, who are both struggling with pride. Yeah. And so we see this come up again and again, and it's either rash judgment. You know, they think they know better than other people. So they make these quick judgments about others, or it's um, just not having any humility, you know, thinking, they're superior and 
it just happens in social situations where instead of being charitable, they're being arrogant. It, it, it you just see it over and over and over again. And again, it's their relationship that it gets pointed out to each other that they, they call each other out on their behavior. And so for each of them, there's this awakening where they realize, oh, this is the way I've been navigating the world. And it's actually blinded me from seeing reality and seeing myself and seeing other people, which I think is what sin does. Is it clouds our moral vision. Yes. We're not able to see clearly. And so when we're awakened out of that through humility, mm -hmm then we can move towards developing those virtues. So we see each of those characters wake up to their problems and then start trying to build new habits. There's a great scene where after Mr. Darcy has proposed and been rejected by Elizabeth because he's so arrogant, you know, she says all of these brutally honest things to him about his behavior they meet again at his estate unexpectedly and he is making all of these efforts to show her that he has developed different habits and one of them is he's going to be really really thoughtful and gentlemanly towards her relatives who are way beneath him in social standing and so he's showing her that he's developed these habits of humility and graciousness that he didn't have before because he must have really been trying since he woke up to the reality of his vice. He's wanted to start developing this humility that then she can see in him. I, I, so one thing that comes out again in that example, which I love, and I, you, you really hit the nail on the head, um, is in the habitual, it's interesting, the habitual nature of virtue and vice. Again, they're both, they're both habits and patterns, but in very different ways. Like vice is, always ends up as a compulsion that you, you're stuck in a rut Whereas virtue is always an, an, a habit toward freedom, towards the ability to break out of, of habits and ruts and instantiate the good in, in surprising ways. I love the, the quote at the end of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, you know, where Jack, Jack Sparrow is like, you can always trust the dishonest man to be dishonest. It's the honest ones you have to watch out for because you never know when they're going to do something incredibly <laughs> stupid. I love that line because that, that, that's, the, that's the thing. You see all these characters in Austin who you see kind of hardened, crystallized vices like they just can't stop doing the silly, ridiculous thing that they're doing. Or they, they can't break out of their pride or they can't break out of their prejudice, right? But when they do, it's it's a new habit that's towards freedom, right? And so they're, they're, vices and virtues are habits, but they're, one is, is, is a, ha a habit that leans toward compulsion and stuck in a rut, whereas one is towards this, this new freedom. Uh, it's, it's, it still ha has an habitual element, but it's, it's creative. It's always new. It's surprising. It's fresh. Yeah. yeah I yes. I think that point about oh, freedom is mm -hmm. just really key. And Austin highlights that so well. Um, Mansfield Park is one of my favorites of her novels. It's a little lesser known, but there's a character who's very charming, Henry Crawford. He and his sister are fashionable and they're incredibly charming, but he is just completely crippled by his inconstancy. You know, he knows the right thing to do, but he just wants to do whatever will bring him pleasure in the moment. And he can't get out of this pattern. And so he has these aspirations to become a better person. And he wants to marry this woman who's really wonderful, 
but he keeps getting in his own way. He, he's too stuck in this rut of vice and he just can't get out of it. He can't become the person that he would maybe like to be. And so comparing that to Fanny Price, who's his love interest, she is not wealthy like him. She's not charming like him. She's kind of stuck socially. And at one point she's sent home to live with her poor relatives. She's almost like a prisoner in this port town, but she's the one who has freedom and he doesn't because she has the strength to choose the right thing and to know who she is and how she should behave and what she deserves. And so while it seems that he is the one at liberty to, to make all these choices for himself, because he's constantly making the wrong choice, he's actually a prisoner yeah. to himself while she's the one who's free. And it's so interesting to see, again, going back to Pride and Prejudice for a moment, like even the, with the way that an author, in this case, Austin, treats her characters, um, there's a, there's sort of this difference between these characters who kind of lack a self-awareness, and so they're sort of periphery characters in the story versus those characters who really are struggling with virtue and vice. They're trying to break out. They're trying to be free. And so they, they have this, they have this self-awareness of their own struggle that they're trying to move forward that other characters don't have. I mean, you think, of, think about like Lizzie and Darcy and, and some of the other characters compared to like Elizabeth's mom who just, she can't even ever really kind of see how ridiculous she's being, you know, and that's, that's us sometimes the more we get caught up in our vices, which kind of locks us into these patterns. Whereas when these other characters, when they're, they're trying, and it doesn't mean that they're perfect, but they're, but they're more aware of their own faults too. And so that even that gives us this level of, of, of freedom to, to be trying to break out of the patterns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I, I love about Jane Austen and we're big office, the office fans. I was just thinking about that because yeah, in a funny way, like you had the characters who who are self-aware and those mm -hmm. who just aren't. Well, but the thing is, is that you always go into to the novels thinking you're Jim and Pam right. or thinking you're Lizzie or Jane or Eleanor. Yeah. And then the more that you read or the more that you watch, the more that you see yourself. Like I remember when I saw myself in Michael Scott. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, it was like this new, like, explosion in my brain. And every time I pick up um, Jane Austen's novels, I'm always finding a person who is stuck in sin and realizing, like, this is my examination of conscience this time <laughs> around. Like, I think I identify with Mrs. Jennings. I mean, I, I actually think Mrs. Jennings is awesome. Um <laughs> Not because I identify with her, but um, or like Miss Mrs. Bennett, mm -hmm. I really identify with Mrs. Bennett a lot. Um, you know, especially vacillating between feelings all the time, and like my my complaints are contradictory. You know, they're just all over the place, and it's just like it's so hard to read her now because it's like yes, yes, this is what I need to work on. This is where I need to be. But yeah, I just think it's kind of funny because whenever I try to like convince someone to read Jane Austen, and their like eyes kind of cross and. They're going somewhere else. And I'm like, it's like the office um, for <laughs> in a weird roundabout the Edwardian way. period or Georgian period or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that makes Austin so effective mm -hmm. is you do see yourself in the not complimentary characters. Yeah. You can't help but see yourself. And like Emma is the heroine that I feel like I'm most alike, mm -hmm. which is horrifying, <laughs> but it's true. And, and so understanding Emma and her 
blindness because she's so selfish all the time that she's not meaning to be malicious. She's not trying to be malicious. She's not trying to hurt anyone, but she's so self-centered that she keeps causing all these problems and, and hurting people and just not taking into account how something is going to affect someone else. And so because she is both you know, simultaneously infuriating and sympathetic, Austin helps you really have that, like you said, examination of conscience. Say, wait a second, this is reminding me of myself. Yeah. I think maybe I have a problem with selfishness. How is that playing out in my life? It's, yeah. it's so effective. Yeah. There's another aspect here I'd love for you to talk about, and, and that is, so again, on this show, right, we're talking about the, you know, the, the ordinary pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. Someone could hear this conversation and be like, well, yeah, but reading Jane Austen, like that's, that's a particular person's kind of thing, or, or even like literature in general, like not, that's not ordinary. Not, and that's a kind of another topic. But one of the things I, w- I would like to highlight here is that one of the genius, part of the genius of Jane Austen, and I, I'm not going to, I'm going to let you talk about this, is that the, the, the portraits of virtue and vice in the book are not around like big, extraordinary moral choices in their life. Even though the lifestyle that they're describing, that she's describing is very different from ours, the point is, is that, no, it's in all the innumerable small decisions of day-to-day social interaction. Talk about that. She shows that virtue is not something extra or above and beyond or something that you tack on to life. No, it's the basic patterns of everyday life, right? Absolutely. I think that what makes Austin an author that every human being should read is that her moments of epiphany, her her big dramatic moments aren't happening in a war room or in a courtroom or, you know, all of these on the battlefield, all these places that most of us will not experience, you know, we'd be, we will not be tried in those scenarios, but she really brings it down into, will we be um, responsible and thoughtful in the way we take care of our family? Will we be the sort of person that is compassionate and listening to our neighbors rather than ignoring them and only wanting to be around charming people? Are, are we going to, who are we going to sit next to at a party? Is it going to be the person who's really sparkling and super fun? Or will we take the time to go and sit by the person who doesn't have anybody to sit with and looks uncomfortable? And it's going to be an awkward conversation, but they're all by themselves. So what are we going to do? And I think that she, she so effectively shows that those are the moments that make us who we are. And she also shows how those really small things affect our lives and other people's lives in ways that seem really big, that they're these little moments of conversation, trying to be patient with family members, trying to handle a a difficult social situation, that these things ripple out into our lives and other people's lives. And so they really do matter. They're really significant. And whether we're deciding to go and go and visit home or we're ignoring going back to visit our family because we feel like we've got other more important things to do. All of those little things make up who we are and Austin shows how they affect our communities as well as ourselves. Cause every sin is a sin that affects our community, yeah. whether we can understand that or not at the time. Well, I, I really want everybody to read your book and we're certainly going to, um, but I mean, maybe draw, do you have a couple, give us some more examples if you would, like what are some of your favorite, if there are any additional ones here of, of what we've been talking about here? Like what are some other 
pieces that you maybe get into your book or some of your favorite you know scenes or characters here that kind of really play out this whole drama of virtue and vice well any other favorites that you have sure so um there's a lot i'm trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out which is my favorite one to talk about i think that um one that i really enjoyed diving into in this book is my least favorite Austin novel, actually, Northanger Abbey. It's a little oh. bit different. It's, <laughs> it's funny, but it's not quite as deep as some of the other ones because it's a little different style. It's a parody. Yeah. But the character, the main character in that one, Catherine, is developing the virtue of prudence yeah. throughout the, the book. And prudence was a virtue that I don't think until writing this book, I really wrapped my head around or could really understand what that virtue was. So it was fun to dive into that and see how, you know, on, on the one hand, we've got folly and the other hand, we've got prudence. And that prudence is this virtue that helps us to know what is the right thing to do in the situation that I'm in right now. You know, I can see clearly, if I'm prudent, I can see very clearly the reality around me and how I ought to act. And we see Catherine go from making these ridiculous choices to starting to develop this virtue of prudence. And so seeing that and thinking about how does that affect what authorities we decide to listen to you know, when we're watching the news or trying to figure out how to think about different issues. And is that a virtue that perhaps culturally we're particularly lacking these days to know um, is now a time where I should really be courageous and speak out, or is now the time where I should listen? You know, all of these different judgments need this virtue of prudence. And so learning how to, to develop that virtue and pray for that virtue was um, something that I thought about a lot while, while writing the book. That's really, that's really wonderful. And I, I want to think more about that because that is such a, it is a, an interesting novel and I, I love the looking at that virtue in that novel. Well, I think yeah. Prudence in Northanger Abbey yeah. ultimately brings her to dis, to figuring out justice because in the end, the reason why she becomes the heroine yeah. is because she starts to, to, um, to practice <laughs> prudence in how to determine justice towards who she owes her time and her engagements to, you know, as opposed to the people who, you know, the brother and sister pair. I love the brother. I love to hate the brother. He's like um, He's Todd so Packer. He's like Todd Packer. Yeah. He's like Todd Packer. <laughs> My favorite line from him is he's like seeing his mother after he's been away at school and he's like, what is that quiz of a hat, mother? You look like an old witch. And that's like the first thing he says to her. It's so rude and so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, pay attention to how they treat their mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So developing justice in the end. And then like, yeah, I mean, that's the very last quote is like, which do I, which do I reward, you know, filial disobedience or um, parental tyranny? You know, but they're both like issues of justice, you know? Well, and I, I do, again, I love you pointing out prudence in that book. Right? So those who don't know the book, I mean, part of what it's a, it's a parody of the gothic kind of the, the real dramatic gothic novels of those time. Right. And the, and the, the heroine in the, in the book, she herself exemplifies that where she's kind of got this, 
she's indulged this kind of wild imagination of the books that she's reading, and she's kind of applying that to her life, and that's getting her into trouble. Well, one of the key things that prudence does, we've talked a lot about, it's one of our favorite virtues this here. This is Mary it, Prudence here. It's got Mary Prudence is on the Aww. way. And we, we've talked a lot about prudence because Thomas, you know, points out that prudence is sort of the mother and mold of all moral virtue. All the other virtues sort of depend on prudence. And it's hard to get, it's hard to see why that is, but it, this novel gives us an example of it, of that if you have to decide whether you're going to be a person who's indulging your fantasy or your narrative or your, you know, your picture of the world or whether you want to step out and try to see things as they are. And that's a fundamental decision because everyone's got narratives they want to follow. They, they want to, they want to interpret the world in all sorts of ways, but it's a decision to step out of that and say, no, but what's real? What, what justice do I really owe? What are things really in themselves? Or am I going to hold on to my fantasies? And that's like this turning point. And she plays it out in this novel, but in so many other novels too, of like, whether the person is going to strive for freedom in reality or whether they're going to remain in their vice and in their fantasy. And yeah, it plays out really well there in that novel. And I think what she really draws out is this idea of developing moral imagination, yeah. to learn, having this empathy for others so we know how they would like to be treated even if they're different from us, which is maybe what Mrs. Jennings lacks. She has every good intention but she doesn't know that not everyone likes to be teased about their bow that they left behind in Sussex, you know? Yeah. And so Catherine kind of has to develop this moral imagination so that she can understand how, while she is artless and kind hearted, other people might not be. And she needs the prudence to be able to discern that, that, Oh, I see all these red flags from this person. While if I did that, it might mean this, I know this person to be untrustworthy, so they must, they must have ulterior motives here. I can't really trust that. And so it's kind of developing and expanding that imagination of, of our, the moral landscape to understand how other people might be behaving and so then how we ought to behave to them. Yeah, I think you know, Sense and Sensibility is another one that comes to my mind here where we, we could almost rewrite the title of like, um, well, one way we could, prudence and passion. In other words, one of the dramas of the book, right, is that you have Marianne, right, Marianne? Um, well, she sort of saying. laments that some of the other characters, <laughs> they're cold or they, they're not as passionate, you know, as you know, as she is, right, or as the characters that she's attracted to. And and there's a truth to that, right? Like the, it, it would be a vice, it would be a deficiency of, of a person who was just cold, who didn't have a heart, you know, who didn't feel, Right. But part of the drama of the book is realizing, like, but you can't be people who are pulled around by passion. Like, it is the prudent person who is able to, you know, kind of manage their heart and, you know, and and apply it rightly or, or hold it back appropriately. But it, it's the question of whether your passion is going to be driving you or whether you're going to be a person of, of prudence. And that's like this primary drama that plays out through many of the books. Yeah, Edward's really interesting because he is accused of being dispassionate even though he is, has a temperament that's you know a little a little less intense but the reality is the whole time is that he loves Eleanor but he had he's trying not to show it to anyone but himself you know because he has the secret loyalty to someone else he's been engaged to for five years you know so we're seeing his his prudence in like maybe not showing as much um but then also we see Willoughby then who has this other 
pretty serious, like, hangover, this child with this woman, you know, or this dalliance. And he's running from that reality. He's running from that loyalty. And he's being more passionate towards Marianne, who he loves more. And you can kind of almost see below the lines this, this I'm running from her because she's way better. And this is, this is what I actually wanted, you know. And so <laughs> I, love, I love Edward's development as he, like, kind of, He's is always to do justice. He's well, to, because he was imprudent in the past. He was mm-hmm. Willoughby in the past. We're not as bad as Willoughby, but like just making a silly, passionate decision. And then he has to live with this silly, passionate decision, which means he kind of has to temper his temper what he does. And he comes off a little cold and a little like, bleh. but, you know, he's learned <laughs> from he's learned from it. And perhaps that's what Willoughby becomes in the future, you know, yeah. just like this tempered person who's like, I shouldn't have been drawn around. These ridiculous passions I think and that desires. That novel, which is one of my favorites of, of all of Austin's novels, is such a good to it's such a good exploration of temperament mm-hmm. versus character. Mm. And so the two sisters are very different temperamentally. But Marianne seems to think that her temperament defines who she is and how she ought to act. And so to be, um, to have temperance, you know, to kind of have some self-control over her passions, try to make decisions um, more, more clearly and more thoughtfully. She just thinks, well, that's just not how I'm wired. I'm just a really right. passionate person and I have to behave this way. It's like faded mm-hmm. that this is how I navigate the world. And she has to come to this understanding that while the way she is wired by God is not bad, it's not bad that she's emotional and passionate, but she has to learn to order that well towards virtue. So we see that her her sister, who is a lot more reserved and not as thrown about by her passions, as you as you get through the novel, you and Marianne start to see that Eleanor isn't passionless at all. She has very strong feelings, but she's learned how to order them in a way that um, honors her her loved ones, honors other people, honors God. And so she is learning to take her temperament and kind of give it, move it towards the the person that God has designed her to be. Mm in a way that Marianne doesn't learn until later in the book that she has been created in a certain way, but that has to be ordered towards the person that God has really designed her to be. It can't just be, I feel very passionate. So I just get to fly around my life, no matter how it affects other people. Yeah. That's so good because that really is a, such an important distinction that you can talk about, but you kind of have to see it played out. There's a different, there's, a, there's an important difference between temperament, you know, or your basic kind of personality traits and then virtues, you know, and, the, you know, you're, there's a variety of personalities, but every one of us has the particular ways which we need to supplement our personality with virtue, mm-hmm. so to speak. We need to, like, we have our places where it's easy for us to be virtuous, so to speak, um, but then we all have our particular fears, our particular desires that need to be tempered, our particular areas of justice that we have to develop more of the habit. And so yeah, to see that played out helps us to recognize, oh yeah, okay, well, so I too have a personality. I have strengths and weaknesses. I have to fill in the gaps there. So. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, this was really a wonderful conversation. I know we had to yeah. bring this particular one to, to a close, but we're going to have another conversation 
the next episode about, you want to give a preview of that, Teresa? Yeah, we're going to talk about something that has been really influential in our marriage. um, And that's your article on the sharing the mental load of homemaking. And it's something we talk about a lot here, um, particularly because our, our podcast is us shoulder to shoulder figuring out vice and virtue in our family and our life. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this. <laughs> so, cool. yeah, we'll see you. But So we'll see you then. But thanks again for joining us for this episode, Haley. Sure. Thanks. It was a blast. I love any chance to talk about Austin. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> can you uh, remind the audience of where they can oh, yeah. find more of your, your your blog and your resources? Sure. So my, my blog is totally neglected these days, but you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Haley Carrots. And um, my book is Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life. So you can find that at Ave Maria Press or on Amazon. And yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, wonderful. wonderful. Thanks again for joining us. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Elevate Ordinary. Hopefully you found it edifying. And gosh, definitely check out that book, you know, and we'll we'll be back next week talking more to Haley. I'd like uh, to read that during my postpartum yeah, period. Yeah, it's going to be actually. really good. Yeah, and, and pick up some Austin. <laughs> you know, one other thing we didn't go into, but I, I always want to remind people, is that, um, gosh, just, just pick up the books and, and get through them. Sometimes I think we have bad reading habits. Heck, we, watch the movie we, first. Yeah, whatever you need to do genius. to get through it. So watch the movie first. You get the idea of her irony and yeah. then pick up the book. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> you don't. I, I just talked to somebody the other day and they were talking about how they, they got started with the book and they got bogged down. Just get through it. Sometimes you need to experience a book multiple times. Mm-hmm. You're like, just get through it so you get the plot and then read through it more slowly the second time. Um, you are a reader. You just don't know it. You just got to, you know, stretch yourself a little bit. You'll get there. So we'll walk around along with you. Anyway, thanks again for joining us for this episode. Again, uh, you can find out more information at elevateordinary.com, more uh, episodes on virtue and on Austin back in the archives. Check those out. Also, uh, consider joining our patron community, the Manor at St. Anne's. Uh, and download the Awaken app at theawakenapp.io where you can follow this show and get a lot of other cool stuff from Awaken Catholic. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you again next week. God bless.